Our scripture passage for this morning comes from Psalm chapter 40. It's found on page 468 in your pew Bible. Hear the word of the Lord. I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me and heard my cry. He drew me up from the pit of destruction, out of the miry bog, and set my feet upon the rock, making my steps secure. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. Blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust, who does not turn to the proud, to those who go astray after a lie. You have multiplied, O Lord my God, your wondrous deeds and your thoughts are towards us. None can compare with you. I will proclaim and tell of them, yet they are more than can be told. In sacrifice and offering you have not delighted, but you have given me an open ear. Burnt offering and sin offering you have not required. Then I said, Behold, I have come. In the scroll of the book it is written of me. I delight to do your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart. I have told the glad news of deliverance in the great congregation. Behold, I have not restrained my lips. As you know, O Lord, I have not hidden your deliverance within my heart. I have spoken of your faithfulness and your salvation. I have not concealed your steadfast love and your faithfulness from the great congregation. As for you, O Lord, you will not restrain your mercy from me. Your steadfast love and your faithfulness will ever preserve me, for evils have encompassed me beyond numbers. My iniquities have overtaken me, and I cannot see. They are more than the hairs of my head. My heart fails me. Be pleased, O Lord, to deliver me. O Lord, make haste to help me. Let those be put to shame and disappointed altogether who seek to snatch my life away. Let those be turned back and brought to dishonor who delight in my hurt. Let those be appalled because of their shame, who say to me, Aha! But may all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. May those who love your salvation say continually, Great is the Lord. As for me, I am poor and needy, but the Lord takes thought for me. You are my helper and my defender. Do not delay, O oh my God. Amen. Let's pray together as we approach God's Word this morning. Let's pray. Gracious and Heavenly Father, we pray this morning that even as we read earlier in the psalm, that You would open our ears, um, that You would open our ears to hear the glad news of Your deliverance, the good news of the gospel, we, because we need You to remind us this morning that though we all come into this room facing a number of different things in life, uh, we really are all the same. All of us in this room, we are far more broken than we could ever imagine. And so together we need to hear of the hope that we have in Jesus, that at the same time we can be both far more broken than we could ever imagine, but also far more loved and accepted and secure and approved of than we would have ever dared dream possible, and all because of the person and work of Jesus. And Father, we pray that this grace would transform us this morning, for it's in Jesus' name that we do pray. Amen. Please be seated. Um, 
We forgot to take out of the bulletin uh, that children are not going to be dismissed for uh, Children's Church this Sunday. We try to give our Children's Church teachers a break every now and again. Um, and since it's a holiday weekend, we, we typically uh, give them those weekends off. Um, we're looking together this morning at Psalm 40, uh, which was read for us earlier. And I'm going to start a little differently um, than usual this morning because there are some really unique features to Psalm 40. Um, and what I want to do uh, for us right now is I want to point out a couple of point out a couple of these unique features, and then I want to let them just kind of frustratingly hang there as unanswered questions for a little while um, before I come back. And this could be a terrible idea. I don't know. Um, never done it before, but we're going to give it a shot, okay? So let me uh, point out some of these features and ask these questions for us. First, when you look at this psalm that we read earlier, Psalm 40, um, it feels backward. Um, it, it's basically two parts. You could cut the psalm in half. And the first part is praise for God's deliverance. And the second half is prayer for God's deliverance. And that feels out of order and backwards, and it, and it really is to most psalms, right? Because usually when a psalm has these two parts, the first thing you get is the prayer request, and then the second thing you get is the praise for that answer to that prayer request. So Psalm 40 appears backward, um, praise first and then prayer request. So that's the first question, why is this psalm backwards? Um, and then second, verses 13 through 17, uh, the last several verses of this psalm, um, they are a quote of another psalm. With one small difference, these verses are a direct quote of Psalm 70 in its entirety. And if you had your Bible open, you could flip over to Psalm 70, and you could see them paralleling just like that. And th- my question is here, why would David, writing a psalm, quote another psalm in its entirety, um, right? That's the second question. So why is the psalm backwards? Why is David quoting another psalm in this psalm, okay? Now, now just file those away and let them hang out there unanswered for a little bit, and we'll come back to them. Justin already mentioned the band U2. You've got to talk about you too if you're in my age group and you come to this psalm, right? But uh, years ago, Bono, the lead singer of U2, he was asked to write an introduction for a pocket-sized publication of the psalms. Um, And the whole thing is pretty fascinating. I'm pretty sure you can find it online somewhere. But I I just want to read one part. Psalm 40, Bono wrote, um, because that's the song that they sing that Justin was talking about. The name of the song is 40, sing it at the end of their concerts, and it's really Psalm 40 verses 1 through 3. Um, Anyway, um, Bono wrote this, Psalm 40 is interesting in that it suggests a time in which grace will replace karma. And love will replace the very strict laws of Moses. In other words, fulfill them. And he goes on, I love that thought. David, who committed some of the most selfish as well as selfless acts, was depending on it. That is grace. That the Scriptures are brimful of hustlers, murderers, cowards, adulterers, and mercenaries used to shock me, and now it's a great source of comfort.'" 
grace replacing karma. It's a very interesting thought. And so I dug up an interview uh, that Bono spoke in a few years after this, and, um, and here's what he said. He's explaining this thought, grace replacing karma. He said, <clears throat> I'm pretty sure that, you know, the universe operates by the laws of karma, essentially. All physical laws do. And you know, what you put out comes back against you. Then enters the story of grace, which is really the story of Jesus, which turned this view of the universe upside down, and it's completely counterintuitive. And he went on to talk about how hard it is for us to grasp grace. I mean, concepts like justice and failure and fairness um, and, and revenge, we grasp those naturally, right? But it's very, very hard for us to grasp grace, incredibly hard for us to grasp grace. And that's what I want to talk to you about this morning, um, this upside-down, completely counterintuitive story of grace. And I want you to see that grace like this has the power to transform you from the inside out, okay? Now, we're going to focus primarily this morning on verses 1 through 10 as we consider this transforming power of grace, but because I want you to see that grace met David in the pit of despair, right, in the miry bog. Grace delivered David from that pit of destruction. Grace is what transformed David, and it's grace that this psalm is telling you this morning. It's this grace that can meet you. It's this grace that can deliver you. It's this grace that can transform your life and set you free to be who and what you were made to be. So here's what I want us to see this morning, three, th- three things. I want us to see first this grace that puts a new song in our mouths. And then second, I want us to see this grace that shapes your life from the inside out. And third, this grace that propels you outward in radical freedom. Okay, first, think with me about how grace puts a song in your mouth. In the opening verses of Psalm 40, David remembered this time when he was in a pit of destruction and he was waiting patiently. Waiting patiently is really too weak of a translation of the literal Hebrew because the literal Hebrew says, waiting I waited. It's talking about this real intense and intentional waiting. He's talking about endurance, right? And he, in his waiting, he cried out to God, and God inclined to him, is what we read in Psalm 40. But again, literally, there's a different translation. Literally, what it's saying here is, I cried out to God, and God bent down to me. I mean, it's the idea that God saw something that caught his eye, David. And he couldn't pass by him unaffected. He had to bend down to meet David, right? David remembered, right, being in a pit of destruction, helplessly stuck in the mud, and he remembered God delivering him personally. When you read through the opening three verses, right, it's astounding how many personal pronouns are there. Three verses, but seven personal pronouns, right? I, me, or my, over and over again, that this huge God personally was interested in David and involved in his life just amazed him. But then did you also notice how God was the subject of all those verbs? 
in verses 1 through 3, right? He inclined to me. He heard my cry. He set my feet. He made, he made my steps. He put a song in my mouth. I mean, there's so much that could be said about all this, but I want you to think with me about this song for a moment, right? In particular, I want you to consider the unnaturalness of this song, the unnaturalness of this song, right? The song, this song, David is saying, did not originate with him. It was given to him. It came from outside of him, right? God put it in his mouth. David was saying, for me to sing this new song required God putting it in my mouth. In other words, he's saying, this song came by grace and by grace alone, right? You you know what this means? This means if we ever find grace, it is because God's grace first found us. Right? Anyone who truly discovers God's grace feels like that. We never would have found grace on our own. Our sins, our brokenness, our blindness, our lostness put us in the pit of destruction, in the miry bog. And the only way anyone finds grace is if God bends down towards us and shows us grace and gives us grace. I've heard that the preacher Martin Lloyd-Jones um, used to say that it was pretty easy to spot the difference between a Christian and someone who is just religious. Um, And he said it was easy. You just ask each of them if he or she is a Christian. He said when you do that, the religious person will get very angry and defensive about that question. How dare you question me? How dare you question my morals, my religious performance, right? And he said, but ask a Christian… And a Christian will laugh at you. <laughs> They'll say something like, yeah, I know, it's ridiculous. <laughs> I can't believe I'm a Christian either. It's amazing. It's unbelievable, isn't it, that God loves someone like me and put this song in my mouth. A Christian knows the unnaturalness of this song. It comes purely by grace. And the song is new, we're told. It's, a, it's just idea of a continual source of wonder and amazement, right? The wonder and amazement, I think, really confronts us in Psalm 40. Just look at verse 5, for example. He says, "'You have multiplied, O Lord my God, your wondrous deeds and your thoughts towards us. None can compare with you. I will proclaim and tell of them, yet they are more than can be told.'" Here's what David is saying. He's saying, "'I cannot get over the wonder of it all.'" that the God of the universe noticed little old me. He's saying, I am amazed to think that God is fascinated with me personally. I mean, that's what he's saying here. He's saying, he thinks about me so much, I can't even begin to count how many thoughts he has towards me. And he's saying, I can't hold this in, right? This song that was put in my mouth, it has to be sung, it's a song of praise. At the top of your bulletin on the inside cover, I, I put a quote from C.S. Lewis. It's one of my favorite quotes from, from Lewis, um, but it really only makes sense in context. Um, see, Lewis was struggling with the idea that as he read through the Psalms, God kept demanding that his people praise him. And he said it was like God was saying over and over, 
What I most want is to be told that I'm good and great. And, and so Lewis was struggling, in other words, because it, fe- it left him feeling like, is God really this needy and this insecure that he has to keep telling us, you know, I demand your prayer, tell me how good I am, tell me how great I am, that kind of thing. I mean, we all hate being around people that are like that, right? But then he says he realized something about the very nature of praise, right, where the quote reads, Praise not merely expresses delight and enjoyment, but completes it. Right? See, when you hear, I don't know what your thing is, right? When you hear a great podcast, I'm in this podcast deal right now, um, or when you find, discover a new TV show on Netflix, or when you see a great movie, or when you read a great book, or when you go on a great vacation, you start looking for friends to tell about it. You want to, it's got to get out. You need to tell them, right? Because it doesn't just express the delight and the enjoyment. It actually completes it to be able to talk about it, to be able to share it with others. It has to find its way out of you, right? I will proclaim and tell of them, David says, yet they are more than can be said. It's got to get out of me. I've got to share it. You know, to personally experience God bending down to deliver you, to experience God putting a new song in your mouth, listen, that is grace. That is undeserved love, and it is so, so very hard for you and me to grasp it. Last week, I heard a story about a seminary professor, um, you know, preacher school, seminary professor who at the beginning of his semester had all of his students answer one simple question at the beginning of his class, handed them all out a little slip of paper, and on it it said this, do you believe that God loves you? Circle yes or no. There are 120 students in that class, and ha- this is preacher school. How many do you think circled yes? Two out of 120. Maybe, whatever your feelings about Bono, (laughs) and you too, maybe he was right. That it's really, really hard for us to grasp grace. In fact, if we are ever to truly grasp grace, this is what David is saying. It has to grasp you first. God has to put this new song in your mouth, a realization that, yes, your sins are big, but they are never bigger than God's grace. Without God's grace, all your songs, all my songs, they are dirges, they are laments, they are songs of weeping. But with God's grace, it does not matter who you are. And it doesn't matter what you've done, and it doesn't matter where you've been. You can be a hustler a murderer, a coward, an adulterer, and you can sing a new song by grace. You can sing a song of praise. Okay, second, let's talk about how God's grace shapes our lives. Uh, Verse 6. Verse 6 is just an odd, weird little verse, right? Let me just read some parts of it again. The first part and the last part. Sacrifice and offering you have not desired. Burnt offering and sin offering you have not required. That's really, really odd. That, that's just a bizarre thing for David to say. 
Because, I mean, even a cursory glance at the Old Testament will tell you that God desired His people to bring offerings and sacrifice. And yes, He really did require burnt offerings and sin offerings, right? There are entire books of the Bible, right, like Leviticus, that explain in detail what God desired and required in these sacrifices and offerings. It it, it was like punishable by death if you did not do it right. That's how serious it was. So maybe the question ought ought to be, what do you mean God doesn't require these things? Because clearly the Bible speaks about this. And here's what David's saying. He's saying, God does not want your mere outward and external performance. You're going through the motions. God wants the whole you, inside and out. See, grace comes in from the outside and shapes your whole life from the inside out. Grace shapes who you are at the very core of your being. There's this weird word picture in the middle of verse 6 that I I left out when I was reading those verses. And so it's so weird that most translations, um, including the one we use this morning, they just avoid it because it's awkward. It's weird. It, It says this. In our translation, it said, but you have given me an open ear. But literally the Hebrew says, but you have dug, dug out ears for me right? The picture is this. God came from the outside and dug holes in the side of my head (laughs) so that I could hear his voice. Now, obviously, David's not talking about his physical ears here. He's saying, God gave me ears to hear of his love and of his grace to me. And that's when David experienced this inside-out transformation that I've been talking about. He was realizing God's grace demands far more than mere outward performance of ceremonies and rituals and sacrifices and offerings. God's grace demands the transformation of my whole life inside and out, a new desire springing up from the inside to do God's will. That's what verse 8 is about. It's grace and words of life that you have to hear from the outside that ends up shaping you from the inside out, right? Let me give you a feel for the power of hearing words from the outside, and hopefully all this language that I'm using will make sense, outside and inside out and all that. In the 13th century, the Roman emperor Frederick II, he conducted an experiment because he wanted to discover… Uh, this, these are his words. He wanted to, to discover original language. Um, what was pure language, right? What kind of language would develop if it was kept from any outside influence? And so what he did was this. He took several infants in his kingdom and made sure they were provided for and cared for. They had all the necessities, food and clothing and shelter, But the nurses that were put in charge of these little infants, they were given strict orders not to talk to the children and not to even let the children hear them talking with one another. Right? Kind of creepy, right? (laughs) Um, So what were the results of the the experiment? You know, what kind of language came out of this? Um, Well, 
the results were inconclusive. Do you know why? Every single infant died in that experiment. It's been, you can look it up, it's been known ever since as the forbidden experiment. That's how powerful words from the outside are to us. We need them like water, like air, like food. We can't survive without words from the outside. Now listen, in your life, that is why hurting and cutting and crushing and demoralizing and weaponized words that were spoken to you from the outside, whether it be by a parent or a spouse or a child or a friend, it has stayed with you for years. I mean, some of you are 50, 60 years old, and you still are hanging on to words that were spoken to you when you were a 10-year-old child. That's the power of words from the outside, right? But it's also why encouraging and loving and kind words spoken to you from the outside, they can change your countenance in a moment, in a flash, and turn you around. Listen, here's my big concern. Here's my big concern with this. Many of us who really are trying to navigate and to survive a very hard and harsh, broken world, we have bought into the popular psychology of our day. Um, and the popular psychology of our day goes something like this. If you want to have a self, healthy self-image, you need to learn how to listen to the voice inside of you, coming from inside of you, right? And you've got to learn how to tell yourself that you're enough, And you've got to learn how to tell yourself that you're valuable and that you're beautiful and that you're lovable and so on. But let me tell you something hopefully you know already. It does not work. It cannot work in your life. The only words that can truly shape you and transform you from the inside out are words spoken to you from the outside. This is why you can tell yourself a million times a day that I'm enough and your spouse comes home and says you're not enough, and in the blink of an eye, all those million self-affirmations are wiped away. Listen, God dug holes in the side of your head, (laughs) right? You were made to hear His voice, and the only voice that you can trust is an objective voice from from outside of you. What you need are words of grace, words of forgiveness, words of life, words of acceptance and approval, and words of love, because I want you to hear me clearly here. You might feel worthless sometimes in your life, but if Jesus says you are a treasure, then you are. You might feel guilty, but if Jesus says you are forgiven, you are. You might feel ugly, but if Jesus says you're beautiful, then you are. You might feel like you're not enough, but if Jesus says you're enough, then you're enough. And listen, when you get grace like that, when you get words of life, truth, grace, and love, like you need air, water, and food, when you get grace like that, it demands your whole life. Right? Grace like that shapes you from the inside out. Grace like that shapes you, and it sends you out into a very hard, broken, harsh world, but it sends you out with strength to face it. Right? Okay, third and last, <clears throat> grace propels you outward in freedom. 
an experience of God's grace, so what we're going to say in this last point, moves you out and towards others. Verse 9, I have told the glad news of deliverance to the great congregation. This good news of God's grace has to be told. It has to be proclaimed to others is what it's saying here, right? Grace propels you outward. And then you get all these, in verses 9 and 10, you get all these beautiful knots, right? N-O-T-S, not K-N-O-T-S, knots. I have not restrained my lips. I have not hidden your deliverance. I have not concealed your steadfast love. This thing that was given for me, it's not just for me. It's got to go outward. It propels me outward towards others. Um, G.K. Chesterton is one of my favorite authors, and he wrote that Christianity is centrifugal. Um, Here's the quote. Um, I want you to think about it as I read it. He says, Christianity is centrifugal. It breaks out. For the circle is perfect and infinite in its nature, but it is fixed forever in its side. It can never be larger or smaller, but the cross, though it has at its heart a collision and a contradiction, can extend its forearms forever without altering its shape. Because it has a paradox in its center, it can grow without changing. The circle returns upon itself and is bound. The cross opens its arms to the four winds. It is a signpost for weary travelers. Christianity is centrifugal. I know it's summer, but I'm going to give you a little physics lesson anyway. Um, Centrifugal force is technically not a force, um, right? The actual force is inertia. Um, Centrifugal force is what inertia feels like, right? And for some of us, we've got to remember back to playing on the playground uh, to remember that centrifugal force, right? Um, When you're on the merry-go-round and the faster and faster it goes, the more it feels like you're just being spun out, like you're going to fly off, right? That's the feeling of inertia in motion. That's centrifugal force, right? Um, Now, I'm not going to read you these verses, but in John 16 and 17, if you go read those two chapters, there is a whole lot of talk about glorifying in those, past, in, the, in those chapters. And the talk is between Jesus, His Father, and the Spirit. That is the Trinity, right? And the Father is glorifying His Son, Jesus. And Jesus is glorifying His Father, right? And the Spirit is glorifying Jesus. And I want you to think about something as we prepare to end uh, this morning. It is this. At the heart of the universe is centrifugal force. Because in the heart of God is centrifugal force. And here's what I mean by that. This is the beauty of John chapter 16 and 17. No person of the Trinity, Father, Son, or Holy Spirit, is moving inward to protect themselves, to guard themselves, to hold on to their own honor, to seek their own glory. There's no need for that in the Trinity. Because in the Trinity, every person is moving out, spinning out towards the others, right? In love, praise, and honor to the others. And they have been doing that for eternity. And here's the gospel. God moved out. He spun out of His love to expand that circle, right? To include you and to bring you into that circle, of love, praise, and honor. 
He took notice of you, stuck in the pit of destruction, in the miry bog. He moved out and He bent towards you, not protecting Himself, but moving out, He made Himself vulnerable, right? All to pour out His love for you. You know, Psalm 40 gets quoted in the New Testament, in the New Testament by the author of Hebrews, and this is in Hebrews chapter 10. I, I think it's something like verses 5 through 9, something like that. Anyway, it says, Consequently, when Jesus came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body have you prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. When he said above, you have, no, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings, these are offered according to the law. Then he added, behold, I have come to do your will. He abolishes the first in order to establish the second. And you got to hear this. I know it's hard to listen to all that, but, and by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. I think about it like this. I think it's like the author of Hebrews is saying, you people must have sang Psalm 40 many times when you gathered together. And when you sang it, you must have felt that you could never measure up to Psalm 40, to that standard of perfect inside-out transformation, perfect devotion. And so the author of Hebrews is saying, but in Jesus, a man arrived who was able to measure up and measure up for you and in your place. Rock of ages, right? Not the labors of my hands can fulfill thy law's demands. Could my zeal no respite know? Could my tears forever flow? All for sin could not atone. Thou must save and thou alone. God moved out, Jesus moved out, and he made himself vulnerable to the point of death on the cross as a sacrifice, as an offering pleasing to God. He moved out to bring you into that circle of love, glory, and praise at the heart of the universe. And when grace like that brings you in, it also propels you out with its own centrifugal force. What is it that David moves out to tell the congregation in verses 9 through 10? What are you to move out to tell your neighbors, your coworkers, your friends, your family? It is nothing about David. It's nothing about David's circumstances. It's all about who God is. Here's what David is saying. He is the deliverer. He is faithful. He is salvation. He is steadfast love. Is grace transforming you? is my question. Is it propelling you out towards others in radical freedom and love and even in vulnerability like your Savior? So we started with two unanswered questions this morning. Why is Psalm 40 backward? And why does praise, that is, why does praise come before the prayer request? And why does David quote another psalm at the end of the psalm? First, why is Psalm 40 backward? It's because David is looking backwards in his life. If you have your Bible open, you can look at verse 12 and see that in verse 12, David gives us his present circumstances. 
For evils have encompassed me beyond number. My iniquities have overtaken me, and I cannot see. They are more than the hairs of my head. My heart fails me. And whatever those particular circumstances were, David is in a pit. He's surrounded by evil, right? He's feeling guilty. He's feeling helpless. He's feeling overwhelmed in life. So what does he do? What does he do even before he prays? He looks back in his life to see God's grace to him in the past so he can carry it forward in confidence, right? He looks back in his life to see how God was involved in his life and was gracious to him. For you to see God's grace in the midst of your trials, you have to learn how to look backwards in your life as well as forward, right? You're going to have to learn how to look backward and preach that good news of God's grace to yourself again and again to rehearse it and remember it again and again. Okay, second, why does David quote another psalm at the end of Psalm 40? And, and this is the one that, that I find most interesting. David is in the midst of a trial. What does he need? He needs the same thing you and I need, like air, like water, like food. He needs the voice of God to shape his understanding of reality, to shape his understanding of himself, right? So he's using God's Word. He's using God's voice to shape him. I think I mentioned at the beginning that Psalm 40 quotes Psalm 70, but there's one little difference in the, in the translation. So at the end of Psalm 70, it reads this, "'But I am poor and needy. Hasten to me, O God. You are my help and my deliverer, O Lord. Do not delay.'" But the end of Psalm 40 reads this, I am poor and needy, but the Lord takes thought of me. You are my help and my deliverer. Do not delay, O my God. In Psalm 40, David inserts this line, but the Lord takes thought of me. What's David doing here? He's reading God's Word, yes. He's hearing God's voice, yes. But he is hearing it personally. It's to me. He's speaking to me directly. He dug holes in the side of my head so that I could hear his words of grace for me. I don't know if you've seen, we're pretty much done. I don't know if you've seen these videos of the, the hearing impaired patients who receive these cochlear ear plants. I think that's how you say that word. I don't know. Anyway, we'll just call them implants. Um, these implants that allow these patients um, to hear for the very first time. And there are some amazing ones, right, with little children and even babies when they hear their mom speaking and the changes in their face. And I, I admit, I cry when I see, I just, I weep when I see this stuff. Um, but my favorite one by far is this one of this huge, tough, just ripped muscle guy, right? And he's in his probably mid-20s or something, right? Um, and he's wearing a tank top. A tank top. <laughs> I mean, and he's pulling it off. I mean, he's winning. the. Day. I mean, he's got it. He, he can do that, right? Um, but this doctor, he's sitting in the doctor's office, and the doctor turns the implant on. And the first words this tough, huge man hears are words from his wife. And these are the words, I love you. I'm getting a little teary right now. And this huge guy just melts in a puddle of tears. Have you heard 
the glad news of your deliverance personally. That's what David's mentioning in verse 9, that the king of kings, the maker and sustainer of all things, he loves you. He's taken notice of you. He's bent down towards you. And if you get this grace, it will transform you. It will put a new song in your mouth. It will shape your life from the inside out. And it will propel you out towards others. Let's pray together. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank You that week after week we can come, gather together, open Your Word, and hear the good news of the gospel again, because grace is so very hard for us to grasp. We are prone to wonder. We are prone to forget this good news. Father, would You apply this Word to our hearts this morning. Would you shape us by it? Would you send us out with this good news to declare to a watching world? For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.